Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, RWJ Barnabas Health, New Jersey Institute of Technology, NJIT, makes a difference in our students' futures. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, Gibbons PC, TD Bank, PSE&G, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future. Summit City MD, a provider of primary, specialty, and urgent care. And by United Airlines. Promotional support provided by Insider NJ. And by Jaffe Communications, supporting our state's innovators and changemakers with public relations, creative services, and more. Welcome to Think Tank, I'm Steve Adubato. I am thrilled to be joined by my colleague, Michaela Batts, who is uh, one of our top producers of the Caucus Educational Corporation. How are we doing, Michaela? Great, how are you, Steve? Doing great, listen, let's set up this show. We got two terrific interviews. Um, Akila Sherrill, tell everyone who he is and why he matters so much. Yes, Akila Sherrill is the director of the Newark Community Street Team, and he really just focuses on the history of systemic racism and the importance of having conversations about confronting racism. And the other piece of that that's so critical is, um, I, we're taping this program later, but on May 30th, if I'm not mistaken, there was a rally in Newark. It was peaceful, 12,000 people, the police together with the mayor, Baraka, and others. It made a difference, right? Yes, absolutely, it made a difference. Um, I believe that in order for change to happen, you have to do something to change it. There's nothing that will change by sitting in your comfort zone. So just having those peaceful protests and having everyone speak their mind and the way that they need to, to make change happen on everything going on in the world. Absolutely, and by the way, uh, Akilah Sherrills has been out there on the front lines for a long time. Speaking of that, our great friend, uh, Ryan Haygood, um, who's the president and CEO of New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. What a great conversation we had with him. This is all part of our series simply called Confronting Racism. We talked directly about that. What was your biggest takeaway from Ryan Haygood? My biggest takeaway from Ryan Haygood was really just focusing on what needs to be done beyond protesting. Now that we are, have done the protest and everyone is listening to us, now what do we need to do? And that's really, we just need to educate and continue to have these conversations in order for something to change. We need to educate ourselves, our friends, our families, everyone, in order to understand like this is not okay and something needs to be done. And even if it's uncomfortable, Ryan says, no, we have to have that conversation and we will. By the way, I want to thank our funders who made this possible, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, RWJ Barnabas Health, NGIT, PSCNG, all part of and some other funders that allow us to do this series simply called Confronting Racism. I want to thank Michaela. We got an awful lot of work to do, but without further ado, here's Think Tank. Hi, this is Steve Adubato. Um, I've been in broadcasting for a little over 30 years. Makes you pretty old, also pretty experienced. So in public broadcasting, we try to do what some other folks don't. We're not particularly interested in, in the uh, story, the item, the issue of the day. We try to look at what matters long-term. 
And as I do this PSA or whatever you want to call it, um, there's a lot of attention being paid post George Floyd, that horrific murder on camera that we all saw, the protests, the media attention, the commitment to do better, that we have to do better. I don't know how long it's going to last for some of our colleagues in the media, and this is not intended to criticize them. It's intended to say this. At the Caucus Educational Corporation, our not-for-profit production company, together with our partners in public broadcasting, we're committed to an ongoing series simply called Confronting Racism. What does that mean? Confronting racism in all forms, institutional racism, dealing with police and minorities, the ongoing struggle, the one story after another, one graphic video after another of a black or brown man, primarily, but sometimes women, at the hands of certain police officers who are injured and often killed. It's not just that. It's institutional racism and confronting racism when it comes to healthcare, education, the digital divide, a whole range of issues, social justice. So confronting racism is an ongoing commitment. It's not a one-off. It's not, hey, we did that. We talked about that. A couple of years ago, we did a series of programs on police-minority relations with my colleague, Michael Hill at NJTV, with an extraordinary group of professionals in law enforcement, community activists, and others. We never thought it would get that much worse. Well, it has. This isn't about doing one forum, one program. It's an ongoing series, Confronting Racism. I assure you that every segment, every program, every conversation we have will matter. We in the media can't solve the problem, can't fix it, no magic wand, but we can continue to shed a light, speak truth, if you will, to power, those who are listening. And those who aren't, it's our job to make sure they hear us. So make sure you continue to tune into our programming. You'll see our website right now at steveautobato.org. All of every single segment, every single show under the banner of Confronting Racism will be there. We'll do our part. The question is, will you do yours? I'm Steve Adubato. Welcome to Uncut. I'm Steve Adubato. This is a series of very important conversations we're having on Uncut. This is simply called Confronting Racism. And last time, this gentleman joined us. We talked about a rally that was held in Newark, New Jersey, my hometown, Brick City, on the 30th of May. It was peaceful. 12,000 people. Mayor Baraka was there. He participated. Uh, the police and public safety director, Anthony Ambrose, who happens to be white, born and raised in the same neighborhood I was born in, the North Ward of Newark, participated right there. This gentleman joining us was great to talk to us then. He's back with us on Uncut. He's Akila Sherrill's director, Newark community street team. Akila, thanks so much again for keeping the conversation going about, yes, quote, sir. confronting racism. Yes, sir. So do this for us. We talked about that rally and how peaceful it was, but I want to go beyond it. Why do you think it's so difficult for so many of us to have an honest, difficult, but important conversation where we actually, quote, confront racism? My belief is that you know, we live in a country where um, the very root of it is, is, is rooted in, in, in white supremacy, right? We've had, um, you know, this historical system of enslavement that has um, impacted everybody, 
You know, um, we all suffer from this sexual, physical, and psychological abuse that has rarely been confronted. Um, I think that, um, you know, as a result of the experience, um, you know, there's very little dialogue and conversation that people engage in. Um, and so there are very few intentional spaces for people to, uh, to try to have this dialogue, um, just an honest, authentic dialogue about race in this country. Let me, let me, let me take it a, a, from a different tack. The, literally yesterday, and again, we're dating ourselves. We're doing this in, um, I guess it's the, is it the 11th of uh, June, guys? Um, I'll get the date wrong. Uh, but literally yesterday in southern New Jersey, I'm thinking Gloucester County, and it would check out NJTV News, our partners, you'll see this. In the middle of a protest, a peaceful protest, there were a group of white, and I'm not going to call them supremacists. I don't know who and what they were. And I don't know if you saw this, Akila, but they were, and there were Trump signs all around them yeah. with American flags. There was a white guy kneeling on the neck of a, a dummy or whatever it was saying, basically, you get what you deserve if you don't comply. Here's my point. Clearly, we all want to believe, there's a question here, that we all want to believe that that's the exception, that's the outlier. But there are so many of us who are white who either don't understand or hate like that. How do we include those folks, or do we exclude them, Akilah, and say, listen, you're going to be left behind. We're not going to talk to you. You're hateful. You can't be a part of this. What do we do with that? Because it's real. I think that, you know, we have to create more intentional spaces in the culture for us to be able to have authentic dialogue and conversation. Isn't it hard? It's extremely difficult because what we experience personally also connects us to, you know, this whole historical dynamic, right? When, when, when people suffer, you know, their own, um, like, personal traumas, the, the sexual, physical, and psychological abuse that we go... I lost my job. My can't get, kid can't get into college. I'm having a hard time. And, and now I'm supposed to feel for someone else who's not right. white because it's worse? I'm just playing right. devil's advocate. Is, am I going to have that wrong? No, you got it absolutely right. So then we project, you know, those feelings of, of you know, of, of self-hate and, and, you know, and trauma onto other people. Hate people, I mean, hurt people, hurt people, you know? And, and so... Say that again. Hurt people, hurt people. Play it out. Yeah. So if you're, you know, um, uh, you know, disconnected and you're traumatized, then you tend to project that kind of view onto other people. You know. So it's it's very, um, you know, it, it's not often uh, that that people are witnessed and given an opportunity to not be defined by the things that have happened to them. I mean, my belief is that you know what has happened to us, what we have perpetrated. It, it doesn't define us. It, it only informs who we're actually becoming. So we, we have to create more intentional spaces for people to talk about the deep shames and secrets in their personal life as a way of accessing the gift of who they are. And, and this also has to be understood in the larger context of colonization. Um, colonization robbed us all, you know, of our humanity. Um, you know, the genocide against the Native Americans, the dehumanizing of, of people of African descent, the force, um, you know, forcing people of European descent to be bystanders to that dehumanizing experience. We all lost something as a process. One of my mentors says that, that history belongs to the ancestors. There's nothing that we can do about the past, but we can do something about now. So stay on that for a second. For those who are watching right now, who are watching right now say, okay, I get it. I understand. We need to also change the curriculum to be less 
Eurocentric and understand more of the history of, of what blacks have faced in this country and the role that others have played, our forefathers, foremothers. However, come on, let's, devil's advocate again. Yes, let's sir. move on. Let's move forward. We can't, why do we keep harping on the past, you say? Well, we haven't even dealt with the past. I mean, we How do you deal with it? Can, can we, how do we get to well, this? I, I think it's about language, right? Because words actually um, are, it's the logos, it, it dehumanizes, right? So you, you say a, a black American in this country was a, was a former slave, and I say he was enslaved. Mm -hmm. Because enslavement means that you put the onus on the people who actually perpetrated it, right? It's like, to say that black folks were slaves, you know, it blames the victim, right? And so in this country, we haven't had an authentic conversation and dialogue about the enslavement of, of people of African descent in this country and the long-term traumatic impact and effect that it's had. Um, we now talk about ACEs, you know, adverse childhood experiences. That's We're right. We're now unpacking this whole idea about trauma. How about uh, social determinants of health, largely based on economics, race, poverty, et cetera? Go ahead. Absolutely, but we don't apply it to 350 years of enslavement you know, of black people, 50 years of Jim Crow. And we've only literally been out of enslavement in this country for 50 years, you know? And we can't have an authentic dialogue in this country about, you know, what has happened because of white guilt to a certain extent. You know, white people feel that they were responsible, you know, and it's like this, we weren't there, you know? However, it's still important that we have an authentic dialogue and conversation. We need to talk about reparations. Um, you know, some people might say, hey, you know, um, I wasn't alive then. But yes, the inheritance. What do you say to that? I said that the inheritance has been carried over and carried down. And I think that reparations is a, um, it's a preparatory conversation so that we unpack the historical impact of enslavement, not just on, on, on Black Americans, but, but on everyone, right? Mm. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a book in the early 1900s called The Soul of Black Folks. And he said that the collective suffering that we've experienced is our birthright. It's given us a double vision, a, a conceptual view of the world that few people hold, right? And, and he says that in the wound is the gift of who we are. And, and so there's this savant-like nature that exists in Black folks. There's nothing in the world that doesn't have the Black American imprint, nothing. And, and so I think that we have something really profound um, in, this, in this deep dialogue and conversation that we need to host in this country about race and, um, and, and uh, the traumatic experience of, of enslavement and genocide and, you know, um, forcing, you know, white folks to be bystanders to that, that, that type of trauma. Last question. I know we ran over time, but I still want to ask this. Tell me why you're hopeful. I'm hopeful because there are individuals like yourself, you know, who are willing to host these type of hard conversations. You know, there's individuals like Anthony Ambrose, you know, who is a cop, you know, and who's lived through that whole 1967 experience. And but he shows up and he changes the, the whole dynamic of, of law enforcement in the city of Newark in the past six years since he's been here. Um, I'm like, I'm hopeful because they're real white allies. I, I'm hopeful that they're black Americans who are no longer apologetic, um, you know, and, and just, you know, are, are, are speaking truth to power in terms of these dynamics. And, and I think that it's changing something. I cannot thank you enough for not just talking with us, but way more importantly, the work that you and your colleagues at the uh, Newark Community Street Team are doing in the city of Newark, being a model for everyone else, doesn't mean we're perfect, we're far from it. That's but right. what you are doing, 
what I saw here in our hometown of Montclair um, with high school students, our son happened to be involved with some terrific white, black, brown leaders in Montclair High School, peaceful, coming together. We don't solve it, but we make some progress day by day. Um, we, you honor us, Akila, and we thank you so much. All the best to you and your family. Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate you. Same here. This has been Uncut. I'm Steve Adubato. Make sure you check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Confronting racism. It's not one conversation. It keeps going. Check okay. you out next time. Thank you. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. Welcome to Uncut. I'm Steve Adubato. We're honored to be joined by our good friend. He's been with us many times in the studio. Hopefully we'll be back there soon. We're uh, joined by Ryan Haygood, President and CEO of New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. How you doing, my friend? Good to see you, Steve. It's good to see you. I've missed you. Missed you, too. You and I were uh, texting each other offline yeah. early on after the horrific um, incident involving George Floyd, um, what appeared to be a murder on camera that we all saw. And I remember saying to you when you said back, we have work, we have more work than ever to do. What is that work specifically beyond the protest? Yeah. Peaceful, hopefully. Beyond the protest, what exactly do we need to do? This is part of a series we're doing also called Confronting Racism. Mm -hmm. To confront racism, particularly as it relates to police and men and women who are black and brown, what do we need to do? Yeah. So, Steve, again, thank you for you know, pushing the envelope on these conversations at such critical moments in time. And so I think, you know, to the question of what we do, I think the first thing we do is we lean into the title of your segment. We confront racism. And so, you know, May was a particularly difficult moment for for this country. Right. It was in May that we saw Ahmaud Arbery murdered in Georgia when he went for a job. We saw Breonna Taylor, who was killed while sleeping when the police executed a search warrant on the wrong home. We saw, to your point, George Floyd, who, who was killed who, when an officer leaned on his neck for more than you know, eight minutes and 46 seconds. We saw Rayshard Brooks this past- Atlanta. Killed in, in Atlanta. Here in New Jersey, Maurice Gordon was killed in the uh, New Jersey uh, uh, Garden State Parkway an unarmed black man by a state trooper. And so, what about the incident in the Central Park? Central Park with a gentleman okay. who was bird watching. Christian Cooper, who was bird watching, and Amy Cooper uh, called the police on him. And, and she called the police on him in a way that invoked this really historical, irrational fear of a dangerous black man. And so all of these things have sort of come, to, to come together in a moment that has caused, Steve, people in 2,000 cities across New Jersey to take to the streets and protest, including your son who led a protest at his high school. So I think the thing we ought to do now is to confront racism. And what that means meaningfully, I think, is that we resist uh, return to normal, right? So there are folks, particularly in the throes of the coronavirus pandemic, who long for us to get back to some semblance of normal. 
And I really want to suggest to your listeners and to your partners and our partners that we reject the idea of a return to normal because normal uh, was unacceptable for us. It was in normal, normal May. There were many months and years before May. We had a conversation, Steve, you and I, last year about how you begin to really repair the harm that has flowed from structural racism. So part of what I think a new normal requires is that we have hard conversations we haven't been willing to have in the past so that we can do things we haven't been willing to do, so that we can build systems that we haven't built before, so that we're not continuing to have conversations about police-involved killings of unarmed Black people. You know, I will say to you quickly that I was in high school when on March 3rd, 1991, Rodney King was beaten more than 55 times about the head, shoulders, back. He was unarmed. He was beaten senseless. And that was captured on camcorder. By the Los Angeles police. By the Los Angeles police. There were no convictions. Initially, it required federal civil rights charges to be brought up against two police officers who were convicted on that basis. But we're now almost 30 years removed, and Steve, we're still having the same kinds of conversations about why harm has to stop. And I think part of the reason is because we haven't had conversations about the root causes of what we're seeing. And that's part of what a new normal requires. You know, this is often referred to, you know, you also did another thing with us. You got me thinking about this. Um, you remember the forum that we did on police minority relations? Um, I hosted it with my great colleague uh, at NJTV, Michael Hill, a terrific journalist, an anchor, reporter. We had that conversation there as well. It was like two and a half years ago, I think. It was. But people keep saying, a lot of people say, this is a moment or the moment. Mm -hmm. So I know that we've had these conversations in the past. I know others have as well. But do you feel, Ryan Haygood, that there's something about this moment that gives us an opportunity to make real, genuine, impactful change? I do. I mean, I think this is probably probably the moment of this generation, right? You just don't see young people in particular taken to the streets and protests in the way that we have over the last month. These are really sort of once-in-a-lifetime moments. And the thing about moments is that if you're not careful, you'll miss them. And so I think for us, we cannot afford to miss this particular moment. And let's talk, part of what this moment is about is about reimagining what public safety looks like. It's about reimagining alternatives to policing. It's about acknowledging that the way we've done policing doesn't keep us secure. In fact, it's very harmful, as we're seeing it play out across America on TV, where unarmed Black folks are being murdered by police officers. So part of this conversation should require us to think more broadly, more ambitiously, more boldly about how do you build healthy communities? Part of that, you know, Steve, you and I have talked about New Jersey having some of the worst racial disparities in America. New Jersey is also a state that makes very deep investments incarcerating black and brown people. So young people in New Jersey are um, incarcerated, black young people are incarcerated at a rate of 21 times to one. So a black child is 21 times likely to be in prison than a white child. And New Jersey spends $300,000 to incarcerate each kid. So part of the conversation has to be about how do you make those kinds of investments in kids and their communities? not an incarcerating kid. That's part of what it means to reimagine public safety, empowering communities, alternatives to policing in this moment. Go, go back to the policing issue. Do you believe, Ryan, that 
there, there are two different things. Some have been calling for defunding the police. And if that means taking some dollars from the police department, putting it into recreation programs, programs about mental health that help young people and others. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one thing. Defunding the police with the purpose of doing away with the police, as I saw recently in a report, I believe in 60 Minutes out in Seattle, where there's a block, a few blocks, I'm not sure what the zone is called, but police are not allowed there. There are no police, and people are, quote, policing themselves. I, there's a question here, trust me. Mm-hmm. What do you, do you actually believe in doing away with the police? So I think, you know, we ought to center, to your question, Steve, we ought to center communities and what they think they need in the community. And so I do think that we invest way too much money in supporting the police. You know, the country spends about $115 billion to support law enforcement infrastructure, law enforcement strategies. There are some cities that dedicate up to half of their budget in law enforcement. And so I think part of what you see around racial disparities, around challenges in communities, is that we spend way too much money in supporting police infrastructure. So I think what I propose is that we begin to think about how you make investments in other institutions that don't require a police response. I think very often in this country, in New Jersey, even in Newark, where I live, we dispatch police officers to respond to things that really don't require a police response. So to your point, Steve, I think in what you've seen the mayor of Newark do, Raz Baraka do, is stand up in the Newark uh, the street team. Uh, they are- you're actually on the same program. The, leaders of the, the leader of the Newark street team is on this other half of this program. Akila Sherrills is on that. They, they're somewhat policing themselves. But before you go any further, I want to be clear that Mayor Baraka told us recently in an interview that he thought doing away with defunding the police is a somewhat, quote, bourgeois liberal idea. You don't seem to believe that. No, I mean, I, I think that the mayor would agree that we invest way too much money in policing. But what does it mean to defund them to the point where there are fewer and fewer mm-hmm. police officers and you potentially have situations where people do need the police and then there's not enough police officers to respond, hopefully in the appropriate way? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that the, you know, part of that movement has been mis- misunderstood in the sense that it is at least in part an aspiration, right? So you would imagine... You know, how do we create a community, a city, a state, a country where you don't need policing? And so that's obviously, I think, a phased approach. And the way that you get fewer police, right, is that you make deeper investments into community-based programming, into community-based services. You direct some of that money to things like schools and libraries and parks, right, the things that build communities so that you need police less often and you need fewer police. I don't think anybody's proposing that you do away with police overnight in cities like Newark. Or we have to be honest, we do have some serious acts of real violence in the city for which you need to dispatch police. I just want to be clear about that point. But in my mind, alternatives to policing means that we think sort of in a visionary way, in a bold way, about how do we build communities by making deep investments in ways that empower them. Look, it's interesting. If you go to some other cities and you see a police officer, there's some concern, like, oh, my gosh. Why is there a police officer? But it, too often in cities like ours, when you don't see police, you worry, like, oh my gosh, where are the police, right? And I think even that requires us to recognize the ways in which we over-police ourselves because we activate police for all manner of things that police are ill-equipped to do, either because they're uh, poorly trained or overtaxed and can't really respond to those situations. So in my mind, 
we ought to be leading with a very visionary idea of what it means to build a healthy community and what kinds of investments you make so that you ultimately don't need police except in rare situations. Hmm. You know, Ryan Haygood, uh, you're joining us here for Uncut. And we honor, you're honor, you honor us by your presence. You, you teach us every time. You're also being so accommodating that we're going to do a follow-up segment with you that will be seen in another uh, program of ours. But confronting racism isn't just a title of a series that we're doing, a series of segments, interviews, programs. You've always said to me and you've said to others, this is a long fight, mm -hmm. and all of us need to do our part. We're trying to do that. We're able to do that better when we have friends like you joining us, sharing your perspective on what needs to be done. So, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you in person, in studio, uh, very soon. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Steve. I'm Steve Adubato. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, RWJ Barnabas Health, New Jersey Institute of Technology, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, Gibbons PC, TD Bank, PSENG, Summit City MD, and by United Airlines. Promotional support provided by Insider NJ and by Jaffe Communications.